looking at some that are off the beaten path, and I think this morning is more off the beaten path. I'm going to do something I've never done on a Sunday before. I'd like to sing an Elton John medley to you now. (laughs) Just kidding. Do you know what it is to resolve a chord? You've heard it a million times, especially actually in sacred music you've heard it before, but when you, uh, when you resolve a chord, it sounds like this. Right. right? Like you want that final chord, right? And I worked, uh, I worked with a young woman, and she played the piano, and there was a piano in their house. And if I recall it correctly, her brother, he didn't know how to play the piano, but he learned how to do this to torture her. He would, he would go over to the piano in the house and go, and he'd walk off. And she said she would literally have to run from across the house and go, just, you know, uh, there's a, I feel like a TV preacher walking around this much, but there is such, the reason it's in a lot of uh, songs and in a lot of sacred music is you, you want the chord to resolve. Uh, even if it's set in a minor chord, you want, you want the chord to resolve at the end and maybe even kind of go major at the end. Let me read you a couple of quotes by Old Testament scholars about this psalm, Psalm 88. One scholar said that it's, quote, the most despondent psalm in the collection. All 150. Another scholar said, quote, there is no sadder prayer in the Psalter. Now, why are they saying that? Because there are other sad psalms. In fact, you know, it's something that we've talked about as we're looking at these psalms this summer is there are different genres of psalms. Some are for giving thanks and some are for rejoicing or some are when you feel confident and some are for being sad. They're called psalms of lament. So the other lament psalms, why do they single this one out as being the saddest one? And it's because of all 150 psalms, And of all the other sad psalms, this is the one where the chord does not resolve at the end. The tensions stay. The man that wrote it, if you read the little note, if you're looking in a hard copy Bible, the little ascription at the top, the man who wrote this psalm was named Haman. And Haman worked for both King David and for his son King Solomon. And one writer said that Haman was the equivalent of a poet laureate for the sacred music of Israel. And that's when, you know, church and state were one thing. So he was very important for David and for Solomon. And he may have written, we don't know, dozens, hundreds of melodies and uh, even lyrics, but the only one he's known for is Psalm 88. And it's the saddest psalm in, in the Bible. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. 
You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray to you now and uh, pray to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you help us. We always need that. We need it in worship. We need it out of worship. We need it every minute. But we do feel the need of it in uh, this sad psalm, this tragic psalm. And Holy Spirit, we praise you as the Lord and the giver of life. And we pray for all of us, but in particular those who feel lifeless, who feel more dead than alive, that you will, even through sad words, give life and refreshment and renewal and even joy. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. saw a blog a few months ago. It's not one that I follow, but somebody posted this blog somewhere. And um, it, this, this woman blogging, she was nudging on things that Christians say to each other. And she says, you know, usually they mean well, but Christians just will kind of say trite things and they're not helpful. And listen to the one that she singled out, because you may have said this, you may have had it said to you. I'm sure along the way I've said it wish I hadn't. Here's what she wrote. She starts out, there's a certain phrase I've come to really dislike. All my life I've heard this phrase whenever I go through a rough patch. And by rough patch, I mean a prickly, gnarly patch that leaves me bleeding to near death. You're probably familiar with those kinds of patches. So here's the phrase. God will never give you more than you can handle. And she says this, it's a sweet sentiment, really. The people who say it are speaking from caring and concerned hearts, then in bold. But it isn't true. She goes on to say, I know that sounds harsh. I promise I have not suddenly lost my mind or have become an angry with God, bitter woman who hates the world. Actually, when I realize the simple fact that God can and will give us more than we can possibly bear it got easier. Now, whether or not that's true, that it got easier, it it seems patently 
biblical to say that God will give you more than you can handle. Think about it this way. If you are in a bathtub, you can handle the water. If you know how to swim and you're in a swimming pool, you can handle the water. But if you're in a hurricane, you cannot handle the water. If there's a tsunami, you cannot handle the water. And the kind of word we use for that is you're overwhelmed by the water. Look at verse 7, just taking the text on its own terms. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. This is not a psalm about, hey, God will never give us more than we can handle, but here's something for those kind of tougher days. This is for the person who is overwhelmed. A a felt sense that God has given me more than I can handle. Because that's the language of the psalm. I want to look at three things about Psalm 88. First off, the honesty of Psalm 88. Then the surprise of Psalm 88 and then the community of Psalm 88. So the honesty, and the surprise, and then the community. One of the great things about this psalm, especially when it doesn't resolve the chord at the end, is it just, it is what it is. And I would say this about Scripture as a whole, but this one in particular, it pulls no punches on what is really going on. First thing the psalmist says is, I feel... Like I am more dead than alive. Now, you may or may not have been there before where you, you're looking around at the people around you and it's not just they're living their lives but they seem so alive in living their lives and you're physically alive but you feel emotionally, internally dead. He says, well, I, I have hit a whole new level of that. Verse 3. My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Now that word Sheol, notoriously difficult to define. It shows up in the Psalms a good bit. Uh, it, it is at least a reference to the realm of the dead. And often it has sort of hellish connotations. But it's at least the realm of the dead. He says, God, I, I feel like I'm there. Verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. It's the image of God putting him where the dead are and saying, okay, now you're free. Be with them. Live your life with them. So I feel more dead than alive. Second, I don't just feel like I'm in contact with sorrow and pain, that it's present in my life. I'm covered by it. I'm covered by it the way somebody at the bottom of the pool is covered with water. It's wrapped around me like blanket upon blanket. Look at the second part of verse 8. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. And by the way, you'll know you're there when your friend gets on the phone with you and they try to cheer you up and they are throwing the best encouragement grenades that they possibly can, and you're going, yeah, that's all well and good, but, but, and it's just the feeling of, you don't understand, I'm covered. Down in verse 16. Your wrath is swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Now, already, 
Haman is being very honest. This is what I feel. This is what I'm experiencing. But then he raises the question that when God's people suffer, they have to ask. And you know what? You don't have to be, quote, God's people. Just from being a human being, whether you're religious or not, just from being a human being with a sense of God, you can raise this question. And the question is, what in the world good does this do anybody? God, if if you control everything, that means you control all the circumstances in my life, which means that you control these stressors and these sources of pain and what it's like inside of me. And if you wanted to fix it, you could fix it, but you're not fixing it. And it's harder for me to talk to you. It's harder for me to praise you. It's harder for me to connect with other people. They're backing away from me. What good is this? Look at the rhetorical questions in verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? I mean, is the real big worship service at Springwood Cemetery downtown? Very quiet. Verse 11. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon, and that's, that's the place of destruction that has very strong connotations of hell. Are your wonders known in the darkness, your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And then this may be the most painful one. Look in verse 14. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Now think about that theologically. That, you know, God, you made me and I bear your image. And you made me in such a way that I'm supposed to know you and relate to you. Like one man said that we all have a God-shaped hole, a God-shaped vacuum. So you made me this way and I'm wanting to be close to you and I'm wanting to feel your presence in my life and you feel further away than you ever have and I'm asking you for your face and you're not giving me your face. How does that help anybody? Have you ever felt that way? And just... Before we go any further, having heard that kind of honesty, not just in the Psalms, but in the lives of God's people in other parts of Scripture, you see this. Where they will go through a season of pain, and maybe they can connect the dots because of something that they did. You know, like I'm watching all this wreckage in my life, but that might be David because he committed adultery and committed murder. And then the consequences of rebelling against God is that there's just a lot of wreckage in his life. Sometimes you can connect the dots, but sometimes you go through pain and you cannot connect the dots. Like, I'm talking to God more than I ever have and he feels more distant than he ever has and I don't see what the takeaway is. He does that sometimes. He's definitely doing it in Psalm 88. So that's the honesty. Now, what's the surprise of the psalm? And if you're going to hear the surprise, you've got to hold two things in tension. I want you to hear both things. First thing, the psalmist is very clear about the fact that, God, what I'm going through, you caused it. I mean, if you're God and you have all the power, it has to be that way. And listen to how clear he is about that. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I... I excuse me getting out of place here. Verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. And that last phrase, in the regions dark and deep, in the Hebrew, it's, it's the, 
It's the language of the dark, scary abyss of the sea. I got to go on a guy's sailing trip about 12 years ago in the British Virgin Islands and had never done anything like that, and it was the prettiest water I'd ever seen. And so one day we, we anchored the boat and we did some snorkeling. So, we, you know, we're all kind of doing our own thing and can see the other guys. And so I'm going along, and the water's pretty shallow, so you're kind of trying to go over the coral reefs and looking at these beautiful fish. And the sand was, you know, the water's shallow enough that the light is bright, looks like pool water. And all of a sudden, so fish, fish, reef, there was a shelf in the seafloor. I don't know if it went down 50 feet or 2,000 feet, but all of a sudden the color of the water just went dark. And I didn't know you could do reverse in swimming. (laughs) I literally had a fight or flight response. I mean, I'm just kind of going clownfish, coral reef, clownfish, death, and just... And nothing came out, no sea monster came It just was, it scared me. It scared me. And the psalmist is saying, whatever the heart equivalent or, or, or the experienced equivalent of that place, he's not just saying I'm there. That's bad enough. But he says, God, you put me there actively. Look down from verse 6 in verse 8, the first part. You have caused my companions to shun me. It's bad enough my friends shun me, but you've caused them to do that. You have made me a horror to them. Look down in verse 18. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Now, here's the surprise. On the one hand, he just said, God... You have caused the things that are making me hurt so badly. So, what does the psalmist do with that? Does he say, so I'm done with you, God. And there's lots of songs like that, and there's novels like that, and there's movies like that, there's blogs like that. The surprise is the second thing. Look at the beginning of the psalm. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Look down in verse 9, the second part of verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. That's amazing language. You're hurting me. You're hurting me. You're hurting me. You're causing it, and I'm stretching for you. Look at the, look at the final, uh, verse uh, 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning... My prayer comes before you. You're hurting me. You're hurting me. I'm sad all the time, so I wake up before everyone else to agonize before you and talk to you. That is the surprise of Psalm 88. Extreme honesty and extreme reverence. And we could say that the Bible as a whole, but the Psalms in particular this one for sure, push us toward both of those, not either or, toward great honesty. The Bible never asks you to pretend. It says this is what's real. Painful honesty, great honesty, while holding on to great reverence that He is God and I'm not. 
And here's the thing. If, if you let go of either one of those, it gets unhealthy. In other words, if, if you have great honesty without the reverence, it becomes snarky. It can become blasphemous. It's interesting, and I, I don't hover over blogs a lot, but you know there are, there are some Christian blogs where, hey, I'm going to show you how real I am and how raw real life is by just kind of letting it fly out there. And I'm going to say some things that are provocative. Because let me tell you something. Life is messy. And I don't know if the rest of us are supposed to just say, like, I, I, I never knew that. I thought... I was living in the Pottery Barn catalog this whole time and could never understand until just now that you're saying that life is messy. Um, if you have reverence without the honesty, it does sound like happy, clappy Christianity. It sounds shallow, it doesn't sound real. It doesn't smell real. Uh, do you remember what Elf, that movie Elf, what Will Ferrell said to the fake Santa? You know, the fake Santa comes into the department store and he's just going crazy and, Santa, Santa, it's me. And he came over close to him and he said, you don't smell like Santa, you smell like beef and cheese. <laughs> you know, when, when, when you're just kind of always in the mode of, oh, God, God is the best. He's the best. He's loving. He's powerful and sort of only in private, maybe with a couple of people, is, but I don't know why he won't heal my child. God, God is the best. I, everyone should know God. God is love. God, he's, we can trust Him with our lives. I just I don't know why He lets me stay so depressed. When you don't hook up reverence and honesty, it kind of smells like beef and cheese. It doesn't smell like biblical Christianity. Well, what's the community of the psalm? What do we mean by that? And in some ways, we're saying this every week. But let me say it again. If, you, if you're looking at like hard copy of the Bible, and there's a little note. Some psalms have this, some don't. It's like an, an ascription right under the number before the text of the psalm begins. I didn't include it in the bulletin. But in this one, it identifies the, the writer Haman, the Ezraite. But it also is just letting you know, on the one hand, here's this guy, and he writes this thing, and this is like the most painful journal entry ever. And it becomes a worship song. What if the saddest day of your life, you poured your heart out, kind of like, I can't believe I'm even writing these words would you want that to become the new, the new praise chorus? But it does. And the thing is, it doesn't become it for the Persians or the Medes or the Philistines. This was a song for the community of God's people. Now, first off, think about what that means. That means that we have not just permission, but the tools to speak out of real pain. Neither being flippant or blasphemous or irreverent, but not doing happy, clappy Christianity. And, think, you know, and the Psalms aren't just songs. They are songs, but for us, really, we think, we think of it more as text and as prayers. And Psalms do identify themselves at points as prayers. 
think about this just even in the life of downtown Presbyterian. Something that's really central to us in the life of our church are these community groups. And if you're visiting, and I would say especially if you're visiting and you are sort of exploring Christianity or trying it on for size, or maybe you had grown up with it and stepped way back from it and you're sort of stepping back toward it, most of these groups are off for the summer. A few are still on, but they all resume in the fall. I would strongly encourage you, if you're still around, to visit one of these groups because the hope is here's what you'll see. With all our problems and all our faults, warts and all, it's a group of people trying to walk through life together. And so we'll eat together and we'll look at Scripture together. We might disagree with, uh, on it. We'll pray for each other and we'll pray with each other. Now that, that's all good. But think about just the aroma of the room. When someone's praying for someone else, what if someone, not just for themselves, but on someone else's behalf, what if someone in a group prayed, Father, God of our salvation, we love you, but your assaults are destroying our sister. Now, I'm telling you, I mean, I'm not trying to script anything for anybody, but that kind of prayer does two things at one time. For the Christians, it says, this is real. But for the non-Christian who's visiting, it says, whether I, agree, whether I ever bind to this or not, they're being real. I mean, if the Word of God is real and true, it has to be real and true 24 hours into inpatient rehab. If the Word of God is real and true, it has to be real and true two weeks after the funeral when no one calls anymore. And that's what Psalm 88 is like. It is painful and it's real and it's true. Can we be a community that talks that way with each other and not rush, rush, rush to kind of like to scoot sadness off the porch, but if someone's sad, not giving them a pass on blasphemy, but if they're sad because they're fallen and the world has fallen and they're feeling the effects of it and maybe for no apparent reason, God's face just seems hidden. To let them be sad when He's given us the words for doing that? But I also want to Think about, you know, that community. What's at the center of the community? Psalm 88 is not what's at the center of the community. At the center of the community is a man. And I will probably say this every week of this study, this series, that these psalms literally were Jesus' prayers. He prayed these words. That's amazing. He sung these songs in the synagogue, meaning he prayed and sung Psalm 88. The Gospels say that Jesus, in the midst of all his busyness, would often withdraw to lonely places and pray, edge of town, field, garden. What do you think that looked like? I mean, do you, maybe we're not supposed to picture this, but just picture him from behind. Do you picture someone kneeling down, kind of, kind of, good little boy, 
almost monkish than getting up and going home? Because the only description of what it looked and sounded like is on the front of your bulletin. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. And do you hear both of them? Pain, tears, honesty, reverence. Why is He so sad? Why, why would He ever pray Psalm 88? Because this is the amazing thing. It's not like He came in superhero-ish, untouched by things, and said, well, so that I might have the full human experience, I too will sing these songs and not feel them. Here's what God is like. Because here's the doctrine of the incarnation. Here's the doctrine of God becoming a man. That God, who did not have to do this, He writes Himself into the story. And when He writes Himself into the story of this fallen world... He doesn't just let himself be born into it, but he's born a Jew in a Roman world. He's born into a poor Jewish family. God writes the story where in his humanity, his dad, who apparently was a great guy, died. Why would you as God write your story that way? Because... He's a man. In a fallen world. He's an unfallen man. And a fallen world is surrounding him. And he's going through what we go through. And the last 24 hours, he went through Psalm 88 more than anyone ever has. Because when Haman writes, your wrath is rolling over me, it's metaphorical. But when Jesus sings, your wrath is overwhelming me, your terrors are assaulting me, it is literal. We we need to stop and say, Psalm 88 is what all of us deserve. That our lives would feel like Psalm 88 all the time. And Jesus takes Psalm 88 so that one day we don't ever have to sing that psalm again. Um, I've shared this story before, but I heard an account of a woman, and um, she, she fell in love with this guy. They start dating, and they used to laugh about corny Phil Collins songs together. And at some point, the Phil Collins songs went from being ironic to, like, their songs. So they went from laughing about it to this was, this was their music. And so one New Year's, out of the blue, he breaks up with her. And it wasn't one of those deals where you can feel that something's wrong and you kind of almost start to prepare your speech because you can feel that the end is nigh. Um, it just completely punched her in the gut and she had no prep time. And she said, she just looks up at him and says how can I just let you walk away, just let you leave without a trace? 
take a look at me now. She started saying Phil Collins lyrics because she didn't know what to say. And um, so they break up and she's just devastated. And so she just, and she realizes, and if you've been through a breakup, you've had this happen. If you've come off a breakup, you realize all songs are about breakups. And you don't notice it, but then after a breakup, you're in the grocery store just going, dang, okay. You know? So she decides that she's going to write a breakup song, and it's very hard. And so she decides to call Phil Collins. And I listened to a podcast, and they recorded her talking to him on the phone. And at first it was funny, and he said, but you know, the thing is, when I was writing that song and other songs for, for a movie... I was going through a divorce, and it was killing me. And so, if, if you heard something legitimate about it, it's real, because I was going through it. And I'll I tell you, besides what Jesus objectively accomplished on the cross, whether you feel it or not, the fact that Jesus, God the Son, took these words that a man wrote who never knew that this would be a description of the Messiah's experience. That he, he didn't just sing it, but he felt it. And he sung it so that through what he did one day, his people could follow him. Veil of tears, death, rise, and then stop singing the song. And I really want to commend to you to sing the song. Some of you have been through some awful things just this year that I know about. And I'm sure there's tons that I have no knowledge of. You may sing this song honestly, reverently. But know that our Messiah sung it and lived it more than anyone ever has so that one day the community can put this song down. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise You that You are not distant, even if You feel distant right now. And help us individually, help us as a community to hang on to what is real and true, even if we don't feel it in our experience right now. You will not forsake us. And we say that even as we might feel forsaken this morning. Would you make us honest before you and with each other? Would you enable us to be reverent and stretch our hands towards you? We praise you for our Savior who was well acquainted with grief and we pray in his name. Amen.